Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. You can always visit us at www.commonwealthclub.org. It's my pleasure to introduce David Kirk and his book, The College Dropout Scandal. David is a professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. He's a contributing writer to the New York Times and a frequent contributor to the Los Angeles Times. He was a member of Barack Obama's transition team in 2008 to 2009. And you can find his books on Amazon and find out more about him at davidkirp.com. Uh, he has accomplished a tremendous amount of things, but we would rather have him talk about his topic tonight. David, thanks a lot for coming. Thanks, George. We had this jokey conversation about what an introduction should look like. I kind of, that was, you know, short as you could possibly make it. Hi, here I am. Um, and, and, and befitting the politics of all this, I'm teaching a course at Berkeley called Ethics in the Age of Trump. Um, <laughs> and the joke was, I was actually going to stand up and say, it's a very short course. There are no, <laughs> there are no ethics in the age of Trump, but, in order to get an A in this course, just leave a check on the desk or a money order, a you know, credit card number, and, and you'll do fine. And then walk out of the room and watch mayhem follow and then come on back and say, just kidding. But you can't do that. You can't do that in 2020. Um, you can barely do that here since this is being recorded. And folks out there, I was, just imagine who would be stalking me after that, uh, after that, after that moment. So, um, I want to begin by reading a little slice of the book to give you a feel of sort of what it sounds like and, and how it and how it feels. So this is a story taken. I spent a lot of time visiting colleges, and I'll talk about that briefly. This is a story that story from City University of New York's Community College. Can you simplify this square root? Erica Fells asks her class, and a host of hands shoot up. All but one of the 25 students believe that, in this instance, it cannot be done. The dissenter, Leslie Alcantara, lays out her argument. What do the rest of you think of Leslie's reasoning, Ms. Fells asks, moving away from the blackboard, glasses perched on her nose, scanning the room. Do you guys agree? Everyone wants to speak at once. After some back and forth, they concur. Leslie is correct. Then Ms. Fells points out to another square root that's a candidate for simplification. You guys are great. Now what about this, she asks. And once again, the students clamor to respond. In an ordinary college math class, students are expected to memorize what's being spoon-fed to them and repeat the answers on the exam. Students in Ms. Fells' class must puzzle out the right answers for themselves, and only when they reach agreement does she move on. While this repartee sounds like a prep session for the GRE, which requires prospective grad students to perform exactly the same calculation, these students look nothing like the stereotype of the rollicking college undergraduate. Hostess Community College occupies several city blocks in what was once a Tony enclave of the Bronx. The grandiosely named Grand Concourse borders the school, but while a handful of ornate turn-of-the-century movie palaces survive, the neighborhood has turned into one of the poorest in the city. This is a new-gen higher education world where almost everyone is non-white and almost everyone receives federal and state aid earmarked for needy students. Like most new-gen undergraduates, 
Community college is these students' entree into higher education. Nationwide, poor students are three times more likely than their well-to-do classmates to start here. It's the collegiate home for half of all black and Latino freshmen, but just a third of white students and first-gen students are twice as likely to attend community college as those with college-educated parents. The students I met at Hostess are survivors. That's how they made it here. And most of them are juggling commitments that compete for scarce time. At lunch, I'm expressing breast milk and studying. A student I'll call Susanna G. tells me, I work full-time and my husband requires kidney dialysis. What they have accomplished in less than three months as students in this break-the-mold program called Cooney Start is almost beyond belief. At the outset of the semester, that's three months, less than three months earlier, they were cowed by decimal points and negative numbers. Since then, they have powered through elementary school arithmetic to basic algebra. Now they are ready to tackle college-level math. Another minor miracle is unfolding in Christopher Innes' reading and writing class. There, students who initially had a hard time interpreting a short story are parsing the figurative language in a short story by the Trinidadian writer, the late Trinidadian British writer, V.S. Naipaul, that they might well read in freshman English. Innes paces the room like a panther, using his voice as an instrument, cocking his head to listen. How do you know, he probes, whenever a student hazards an interpretation. What's the evidence from the text? Plainly, what's happening in these Cooney Start classrooms holds some clue as to how to solve the vexing problem of college dropouts. So that's that story, and there's a lot more to that story in the in the book, moved me a, a, a lot for a number of reasons. One is these students are obviously really, they're smart. You don't go from third grade math to simplifying square roots and, and on from the end of August to the middle of November. Um, and that was great. And what made me sad was how they'd been treated for those 12 years that they were in elementary and secondary school. One of the girls told me that when she was a ninth grader, guidance counselor said, look, you know that you're going to get pregnant and drop out at age 16, so why don't you save the taxpayers some money and drop out now? That's kind of amazing. And, you know, these some of these kids, they, they, they passed, somehow they passed the GRE, which is the alternative to high school graduation, and they, they made it. And the teacher who went through the same kind of, she lived in the same neighborhood growing up as these kids, said, do you think that the folks at Columbia right across the river, pointing to the river, are any smarter than you? Yes, absolutely. But do you think that they could do this kind of, you know, they could they could progress this rapidly? They were having none of it. They had been convinced that they were dumb. Uh, they were going to make it. And that's the other thing about this program. Those kids were going to make it out of this program, were going to get into community college. They were going to have graduation rates double that of the normal community college students, many of them going on to four-year schools. My other sort of lament, lament was, if you look at the elite colleges and the minority students and the poor minority students they have there, you look closely, they either went to suburban schools or they were they went to prep schools for a year or two. They had been singled out. Some teacher said, it's a great student, they go off to a prep school. So these kids didn't get found. You know, they might very, we might be talking about Stanford undergraduates and, and not kids at Hostess Community College. Um, I spent so I spent two years wandering around the country looking at schools. Um, Cooney Community Colleges are among my favorites. Their graduation rate 
is 53% as opposed to 16% nationwide. Now, those numbers sound low, and they are low, and we can talk about that in a bit, but the comparison is what's important. Look at Georgia State, where the graduation rates have gone up and the opportunity gap has disappeared. Minority students, first-gen students, immigrant students, Pell Grant students are all graduating at a rate higher than the overall graduation rate. That's pretty impressive. A very different story nationwide. So the question is, why? And that's the question that I wanted to look at. So the scandal, right? And I had a hard time convincing um, the powers that be at Oxford University Press to use the word scandal. They wanted to call it the college dropout problem, and I said I fell asleep by the second syllable of that last word. <laughs> so we got to scandal. Um, the six-year graduation rate from public universities um, is 50%. So half the students are going to make it, half the students are not going to make it. The three-year graduation rate at community colleges, and remember the norm of these, is four years for undergraduate, two years at community college. The three-year graduation rate is 30%. If you look at inner-city schools, the graduation rate is about 15% in, in three years. For these, the students I'm talking about is new-gen students, those who I just sort of described. Their graduation rate is... 10 to 20% lower than the overall average. If you look at 1970, graduation rates were higher. And then people said, well, you know, it's a different student population now than then. So I said, okay, let's look 10 years ago. Same student population. Nothing has changed. Um, at the for-profit institutions, the graduation rate is about 20%. So the story I'm going to tell you is not a story about Stanford. It's not a story about Harvard. There you really have to, you know, it's almost like Donald Trump's comment about he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and get away with it. But it's almost the same to, to, to flunk out or to, to leave Stanford or Harvard or a place like that. Almost impossible. I mean, those places have graduation rates of 95, 96%. But that isn't America. Those aren't what America, that's not where American kids are going. They're going to, to large, State regional schools, not the, not the Berkeleys, but the Chicos and the Bakersfields and the Long Beaches, which I spent some time at. Um, and they're going to community college. So you graduate with a bachelor's degree. On average, you are going to earn a million dollars more during the course of your lifetime. Um, that's what that degree, that's the premium for that degree, more or less depending upon the particular degree that you graduate, um, with. Um, and the students who gain the most are these new gen students. So, you know, they think about, and we think about college as a ticket out of poverty, you know, the, the royal road to mobility. But for dropouts, the story is entirely different. So you start out, the story begins with the fact that they're leaving college with debt, some debt, but no capacity to get the kind of job they would need to pay off that debt. Okay. They can't get good jobs. They're twice as likely to be unemployed. They're twice as likely to default on their college loan. And the consequence of that is they can't, because you can't declare bankruptcy and wipe out your college loan, you're going to have a hard time getting a, a mortgage. You're going to have a hard time getting a car loan. And if you look down the road, you know, that event, that traumatic event affects political engagement, health, life expectancy. Um, now, there are some folks who blame the students. And almost every time I talk about this, either whether it's a shock jock radio show or 
you know, the Harvard coup probably was not so long ago. Somebody is going to say, but they're not college material. And then old guard professors say, well, give us better students and we'll get higher graduation rates. Well, the problem with that is that colleges with the same profile, that is, that admit exactly the same kind of students, have graduation rates that differ by 20 and 30 percent. And colleges with the same graduation rate, in those colleges, the gap between the overall graduation rate and the new gen graduation rate ranges from zero, or even, as in the case of Georgia State, these students graduate at a higher level, zero to 40 percent. That's the gap. Same graduation rate overall. That's the gap. So I'll give you a couple of examples. University of Toledo, the overall graduation rate, 41%. The minority graduation rate, 18%. Old Dominion, a college in Virginia, the same student profile. More than twice as many minority students. 54% overall graduation rate, that's compared to 41. 50% minority graduation rate. So if you went there... You know, same student goes to Old Dominion as opposed to University of Toledo. She has three times the chances of graduating. SUNY Old Westbury, two of the State University of New York schools, Old Westbury. Fewer than half the students graduate and fewer than half the minority students graduate. Go upstate to Albany, 70% of the students graduate and 75% of the minority students graduate. Now, Fordham University is, a, is an elite school. It's a top 100 school. The graduation rate for minority students is no higher there than it is at, at, uh, at Albany. If you had a high school with a 50% dropout rate, we'd call it a dropout factory, the principal would be looking for a new job. But there is no accountability for graduation rates at college. Nobody loses her job because of the high dropout rate. So I'm a policy guy, which means, you know, I want to, you know, if, it, if there's not a solution, there's not a way out, uh, then it's not a particularly interesting question for me. So I, that's when I was, you know, I was going around the country looking at schools that really had beat the odds. The schools that were doing well overall compared to their peers and the schools where the, the gap, the opportunity gap was, was minimal. So what did I learn? It's not very, it's not terribly complicated. For starters... There needs to be strong leadership. The president of the institution has to decide that student success is a priority. Now, I'm, I've, higher education is not a field that I had spent a lot of time thinking about for the last 15 years, and I was quite naive about some of these questions. And I sort of thought, well, of course student success is the top priority. But no. Raising money, you know, getting a winning football team, making the faculty happy, making the alumni happy, making the state happy, polishing your own resume so that you can get a better job than the one you've got. Those are the priorities. And since there is no accountability, it takes somebody who's willing to say, you know, this, you know, this is a moral imperative. That, that's the, that is the rationale for doing it. This is, this is what we're in the business of doing. That's really important. If this, if the, if the story is going to, you know, if the story is going to play out differently, the president and the university have to decide that U.S. News and World Report rankings are not the be-all and end-all of what they're about. So I spent some time at Long Beach State, which is a really great school, um, school with three times more applicants than Harvard. It has the sixth greatest number of applicants in the country. 
170,000 kids want to go to Long Beach State. It's nearly half minority, nearly one half Pell Grant. Pell Grant are scholarships and loans that go to students who are uh, poor and lower middle class, come from poor and lower middle class families. So here's what the provost told me. We don't want to be Harvard, he said, and, and the provost is somebody who's spent much of his career in elite institutions. And we couldn't be Harvard, even if we admitted the top people among all those that apply. We don't want to play in that pool. We can't. We want to be the best in our pool, and we think we are. So in a recent study done by Raj Chetty, who's out here at Stanford, of universities that operated as engines of social mobility, Long Beach ranks among the best in moving students from poverty, from poor families to the middle class. So once the president says, okay, I want to do something about this, what to do? Well, you do a, you look around and figure out what is it? What are the roadblocks to graduation? What explains these dropout rates? And you start at the beginning. You start by saying, you know, we've got some students who the basis of our use of predictive analytics, big data sets, which we crunch to see if students with this kind of background are likely to do this well. You look at, at, you look at your students and you say, this group of students needs, is, is going to need support, particular support, if they don't make it. And so what Georgia State does is it starts with a summer school program. Now, that's unnerving. You know, if you're, if you just got admitted to college and you're told you've got to go to summer school, it sounds like, okay, they think I'm a dummy. And, and what they do is they mix regular underclassmen, second, you know, sophomores, juniors, who are taking classes, right, the same classes they're taking during the summer. And then there are, then there are courses for how to study, you know, how to, how to discipline yourself, how to manage your, how to manage your time. Now, those students, actually graduate at rates higher than the overall graduation rate of the school. Then they also start, there's a phenomenon called summer melt. So, you know, I thought summer melt was, you know, I was a kid, the good humor truck came around, you buy an ice cream cone, you go home, by that time you got an ice cream that's summer melt. Um, that's not what summer melt is. About 20 to 30% of the students who get accepted by a college who put down a deposit at college don't show up in the fall. 20 to 30%. Go figure. Well, why might this be? Well, some of those folks just decide that, you know, they're not ready for college. Some of them have family obligations that have arisen that they've got to deal with, but a lot of them just are overwhelmed by what they have to do. They've got to make sure they're transcripts from their spring semester senior year are there. They've got to sign up for orientation activities at college. They may have to sign up for first semester courses. But the big thing is they have to fill out the federal financial aid form, FAFSA, the dread FAFSA, which is, how to say this, not user-friendly. I tried. Uh, I'm not a numbers guy, and I was struggling with this one. Um, you know, if you're a middle-class or upper-middle-class student, You've got all, all the help in the world. I mean, if you're going to, for whatever it is that you're doing, you've got somebody who's going who's to make it easy for you. Um, but for these students, there really is nobody. So there is, a, there is a strategy that, again, Georgia State pioneered, a bunch of schools are now using. They send text messages to these, to the, to these students. Say, so you, know you know, your FAFSA application is due next week. And if you need help, let us know, and we'll help you. And, you know, this is really easy to do. You don't, you know, all the variations in the theme of needing help are things that you can store. 
in the cloud. And their graduate, their, their summer melt rate went from 20% to 13%. Cost zero, more or less, right? What does it cost to send out text messages? At the other end of the spectrum at Georgia State, they realized that there were these students who were second semester seniors and they were dropping out. Now, what the heck was that about? So they go to the bursar and they discover that these students are $500 or $1,000 short. They've run out of loan money. They're now, they've been there for six years. They've run out of their state scholarship money. They can't afford to pay the bills. So what to do? Georgia State decided it was going to give those students just give them a check for $1,000. So imagine when they first started this program, you get a call saying, this is Georgia State, we're going to give you $1,000. If they hang up the phone, you know, I've gotten that call before from Nigeria. Uh, <laughs> but no, and interestingly, one of the, one of the uh, uh, happy consequences of this is not only did an additional 400 students it's a school with uh, 12,000 graduates a year, additional 400 students are graduating they have a much more positive attitude toward the university because students often get very cynical about what the university wants is our money. But here you've got an institution saying, we care about your success, and the, and the polls show that that's the case. Then, one other thing. It doesn't take fancy data to understand that the biggest roadblock for many students is math. And it's particularly the fact that you require college-level algebra. And that's kind of like, oh, that's old school you know, we did it, surely they can do it. Uh, and there's a really great argument to be made that statistics is going to be a whole lot more useful for folks if they're not going into a STEM field later in life. Um, and so the other problem with math teaching is how it's done. I mean, it's usually done like this, right? You know, somebody's writing on the board or showing an endless number of slides and the room is dark and you don't catch on to what's going on. They, they moved to a, uh, a math lab world in which, you know, students were at a computer working at their own pace. They got a problem. There are TAs all around the room to work with those students. Lots more strategies, you know. And so here's a school that, you know, has substantially done and substantially better than you'd expect it, it to do. And when they were asked, when the president was asked by the Board of Regents, why don't you, you could be more selective. You could move up the rankings. Said, nah, it's not our job. Our job is to educate the students we get. If you get a, if you get a B high school average, you know, you're in. It doesn't matter where it was or what your test scores are. Um, so, why doesn't, you know, why isn't this widely, these strategies used? And I, again, I'm writing in the book about different schools, different approaches. There isn't a cookie-cutter answer to this. But there is the, okay, I'm going to make dropouts and student success my priority, says the president. Let's look and see what the barriers are, and let's remove those barriers. So why doesn't this happen? This is not brain surgery, and it doesn't need to cost a trillion dollars. Georgia State has no money. You know, what do they do for advisors in many cases? They use upperclassmen who've done well in, in courses because students, many students relate better to a junior or senior than they're going to relate to me. Um, so what happens? You can, the, every time I go to a school and say, why is it that other folks, other places aren't doing this? They would say the same thing. People come, presidents come to Georgia State. It's like Lourdes, <laughs> right? 
There's where the miracle is going to is going to happen. They're going to come, and they do. I mean, Georgia State is well is well known in higher education circles. Any educator with a pulse knows about Georgia State. They show up. How do we do this? What's the what's the magic? Which little thing can we do? Doesn't work that way. You got to do a whole lot. Oh, really? Can't do that. Um, and you know they sort of they go away. And you know if you're going to in that situation. If you're going to be an effective leader, you not only have to stand up to the regents and sometimes to the faculty, you've got to break a few eggs. If you had, as they did, an old school algebra teacher who believed in the, you know, turn your back to the class and write on the board or use slides, you know, he's not the, he's not running that program anymore. You found somebody else who was, who was going to really be responsive to students' needs. Um, as, as one of those presidents said, you got to break a few eggs. So the biggest takeaway for me, and it came from talking to students and faculty who were involved and administrators were involved, is that wherever this, wherever, whatever the, the institution, whether the problem is dropout or student engagement or happiness at the school, students need to feel that they're valued members of a community, a community that is committed to their success that thinks and thinks they have something to contribute to their success. They need to understand that they're not imposters, that they belong. And if you think back to your own freshman year in college, you think about how you felt and how insecure you might have been. What am I doing here? Do I really belong here? I mean, I, when I said to folks, I thought they'd made a mistake when I got admitted to college, but I wasn't going to tell anybody. I can't tell you how many people said, me too. I had that exactly that same feeling. So they need, these, these students need somebody they can rely on for personal advice as well as for academics. Now, when I wrote about Georgia State, I got a whole slew of emails saying, they're coddling those students. You know, when I went to school, I walked uphill through the snow, five miles, going and coming. <laughs> but, you know, there's the problem with that. All of us need support. And, you know, in, in adolescence in particular, it's really a storm and drong time. And I say, remember what it was like for you. And, you know, if you came from a middle-class family or an upper-class family, you had a lot of support. You had a network of help. And still, despite that fact, despite all that help you had, if you look at the elite schools, more than half of the students are now going to the mental health programs. They're now seeking psychological counseling now. Now, now move to these new-gen students. They have none of that. You know, in a typical high school in California, there's one guidance counselor for every 1,000 students. So there might as well be no high school guidance counselor. What can that person do? Um, and at what happens, but, and there's nobody else around to help them. So when you ask these students, what is going on for you? Why is it that you're sticking around? They talk about the kind of help that they're getting. It pays off. You know, he has my back. She's like my big sister. She's almost like my second mom. So since writing the book, um, I've spent time talking about and learning about other groups that have it even worse than these students do. Foster kids. So foster kids are new-gen students on steroids. Their college graduation rates, and it's really hard to do the calculation because data isn't very good, are between 10 and 2% depending on which survey you look at. So then you go look at Eastern Michigan University. Eastern Michigan University is a very average American university. Graduation rate, 50%, just right in the middle. 
the foster kid graduation rate is 42%. Okay, 2% to 10%, 42%. What are they doing? They're doing the same kind of support that I'm describing, tailored to these kids. I mean, look, you know, they really have been, have been bounced around all their lives. So they live together and with counselors with them. So they really are, in effect, you know, den mothers, den fathers who are there to help them. And their, you know, and their tuition is paid so they don't have to freak out about money. It can be done. Now I'm learning about formerly incarcerated under, uh, college students. Um, they're amazing. They're an amazing group. Um, and, you know, they, the folks who go into universities after, after going into, you go to community college, you're, three times less likely to return to prison. You got you got a, a four-year degree. You know, the overall recidivation, recidivism rate is about 65%. For those with college degrees, it's 10%. And, you know, if you... One of the pioneer programs is here at San Francisco State, but now California is really the leader in this area. Every one of the state universities, every one of the community colleges, every one of the UCs has a, has a program operating. It is possible to move the needle on graduation rates and close the opportunity gap. This is not brain surgery. does not require that you invade the mint. And, and that's, let me just end, that's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book not because I want to sell a whole lot of copies, though they're sitting out there, uh, and I'm happy to scribble them up. Um, I wrote the book because it's a ticket of admission to a national conversation. You know, it gets me talking on platforms all around the country. It gets me on the on the radio and public TV. Um, and, you know, so that's, that's important. What do I want to do on those platforms? I want to encourage parents and students to pay attention to graduation rates when they're thinking about where they go. If your son or daughter has, to use that example, SUNY Old Westbury, SUNY Albany, you know, in sight, have a look and see what the difference is. California, for students thinking about Cal State East Bay versus Cal State Long Beach, have a look at what the graduation rates are are, are like. Um, I want educators to feel that they they've got a they have a mission, they've got a calling. They don't want to educate. There's so many other things, particularly in the in the social sciences and the natural sciences. Humanity, there's so many other things they can do. If you're going to be at a university, other than, you know, having what you, what something is an easy life, this is your job. And try to get folks to pay attention to the fact that they can do a lot better. Um, I hope that I can encourage college leaders to lead and ultimately that this issue of dropouts becomes a part of the national political conversation. We hear a lot about free tuition in public universities. I am not a fan of free tuition in public universities. I'm happy to talk about that. But that's all the conversation is. If you look at the education platforms of the presidential candidates, it's free, free, free. The only exception is Pete Buttigieg's. He actually does talk about the dropout student success issues that we're discussing here. But you know, just imagine... Couple of weeks, week, the next in the presidential debate just before Iowa, somebody actually asks a question about higher education and, and, a, and the response is, we got 50% of the students are dropping out. That's a scandal. We can fix it. I've got a plan. Wouldn't that be amazing? You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences that are listening to uh, Professor David Kirp talking about his book, The College Dropout Scandal. So it's time for questions. I'm curious about incentives for presidents of universities and and who's setting those and why is the success rate not more uniformly valued? It's a great question. Um, and it, it, it's a natural experiment about how much we value equity in this society. What is it that boards of trustees, state boards care about, big donors care about? It's the U.S. News and World Report ranking. And the U.S. News and World Report does not value uh, edu- the, the capacity of institution to, to educate kids who need this kind of support. just doesn't show up. And if I recall correctly, Georgia State dropped out of that whole process. And there's a lot of pressure on the other side because, you know, we want you to be an elite institution. You're number 50 in the rankings. We want you to go up to number 25. You're number 25. We want you to be number 15. So forth and, and, and so on. Well, you know, there are only so many spaces in that ladder, but that's, that's what goes on. And really nasty games are played to improve your position in the ranking. So, for example, selectivity is a big factor for U.S. news. So what happens? And it happens now. This isn't some piece of history. Harvard, just to pick one example, encourages lots and lots of students to apply. Why? Well, because it's going to reject, you know, 99% of those students, and it'll look more impressive in terms of its rankings, and it sort of battles with Stanford and Yale for primacy in that story. I don't know if it's still the case, but it was true that uh, a number of universities, the the percentage of alumni who contribute is also a factor. So a number of universities were saying, okay, if we haven't heard from somebody in three years, we're going to take them off the rolls and consider that they're dead. You know, this is something that the voter suppression folks could learn a whole lot of lessons from. Um, so that's the kind of games they wind up playing. That's that's what matters. That's where the accountability is. And it really is going to take counter pressure, pressure from state lawmakers in terms of public universities. And they've got to get it right. If you just say raise your graduation rates, not very helpful. I mean, there are all sorts of tensions that could arise in terms of diluting performance or being more selective in admissions, because it is the case that students with higher high school GPAs are going to be, on average, more likely to graduate from school. So uh, you really need to get the incentives right, and you need to tie the money to those incentives. In terms, of, if you say to public universities, "You're we're going to we're going to subsidize you much more than we are now," it's not going to be free tuition, but it's going to be sliding scale and uh, with subsidy up to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or so. That's one of the plans. But in exchange, you've got to use some of these evidence-based practices 
to boost graduation rates, all of a sudden you're going to find a change in behavior on the part of those administrators. It's going to take that. You know, it's not going to, you know, I can preach, you know, all day long about this stuff, but, you know, I go away and they look at the realities of who it is that they're dealing with. But if they got, they got somebody pushing in this direction who really has clout, that's going to make a difference. And sometimes the incentive is so simple. I know the, what you're talking about, about the selectivity one. There are a lot of colleges that are trying to come, like not the most elite, but the 75, and they make applications free. So it doesn't cost anything to apply so that their selectivity goes up and they, Again, there's no point in it except for to make their way up the charts. Hi, thank you so much. So the two practices that I remember you're, you're giving as examples, so I guess they're the evidence-based practices, would be, first of all, having a, a variety of teaching strategies, not just writing on the board with their back. And the other one was if they start to fail, or for example, the second semester students who weren't coming back their senior year, finding out why it is, mm -hmm. and then after they found out, oh, it's money, then helping them with scholarships. Those those were the things that I heard. But when you mentioned naysayers who said we're coddling them, I don't see either of those practices that you just mentioned as falling into coddling. So I would like to know what are the coddling practices that some people see? Yep. There's a whole list of, there's a whole bunch of different practices. And one of the, that I talk about different strategies that different universities use. And it's really important to note that this, there isn't a cookie cutter approach. But what they talk about as coddling is there are lots of counselors, academic counselors, advisors and counselors for these students. And the academic advisors at these schools don't wait for the student to show up at the door. If they, and they don't wait till the end of the semester. They reach out early. If you got a student who shows up in the fall and in October has flunked her first two big papers, she's gone. I mean, the, the, you don't need predictive analytics to know. She's gone. She, she might stick around for the year. She is not going to be there until you actually say, okay, right there in the middle of the semester, we got to, you know, we got to, Support, we gotta do something. We gotta figure out a plan that's gonna work. What's going on in your, and what's going on in your life? You know, I dropped this sentence about, you know, expressing breast milk in the cafeteria at lunch. The people we're talking about have, have real lives. You know, they gotta support families often. They gotta work, and sometimes they're working at, you know, at, at, you know, Safeway, which might have, you know, you're working, you know, these days, this week, and those days, you know, another week. Got to figure out what to do with them, but but mostly it's the idea that you're doing more than than standing up in a classroom and teaching. That's the coddling part of the story. That you're actually paying attention not to academic needs proactively and to personal problems, and you actually see yourself as in the business of being helpful to students with those kinds of problems. Now, to me, that's nuts, but I'll tell you. Uh, you know, if I don't get that question here, maybe because I've uh, anticipated uh, anticipated it, it'll be the first time that I've actually spoken about this issue before, you know, a, a lay audience. Uh, and in some cases, it's a faculty audience. Um, at Berkeley, different version of this, but at Berkeley, as at other places, big introductory science courses like biochem are known as weed-out courses. That is, you know... Students who want to be pre-meds have got to do well in those classes to keep going. And I was giving a talk like this in an older 
kind of grumpy looking professor said, but, you know, there are standards, you know, standards. So I said to him, when you went into teaching, was it your heart's desire, was it your passion to say to hundreds and hundreds of students every year who had their hearts set on becoming doctors that, no, you know, we're banishing you to the outer darkness. Is that really why you went into teaching? So, uh, that did not produce a response. And I will tell you, I will tell you that one of my favorite stories, which I write about in the book, University of Texas, five sections of introductory chem, 400 students apiece, same course materials, same exam, and one of, and four of the sections, there are 25 or 30% of the students fail. In the other section, no students fail. What's going on? Well, you read about sort of what it is that this professor did, but I'll tell you one thing he did. Beginning of class, and you got a lot of kids from the Texas Panhandle or the Rio Grande who were scared to death. They're now at this fancy university. He would wade out into the class, and the first thing he would say is, I'm on your side. Now, just imagine how that would feel as a first sentence. I'm on your side. So it can be done. You know, this is this is why I get unhappy when people talk about standards or they talk about, you know, these kids can't do it or, you know, they're, they're not they're not cut out to be doctors or because they didn't do well on Chem 1 or whatever. It just seems to me to be, you know, a terrible waste of human capital and human beings. Yeah, thank you. Um, you had suggested that the reason it's important um, for students to finish college um, was that it increases their earnings over their lifetime. And I wanted to to dig into that and ask whether that connection seems real for students. Um, is there any variation in the earnings that students can expect or the likelihood of getting a job at the colleges with a lower dropout rate? Um, or I mean, in general, do students see a connection um, between their coursework and entering the workforce? Is that an issue? Is that a factor in their decision to graduate? Or oh, to yeah, continue? I'll tell you, you know, professors, you know, I talk about money because that's what, you know, we live in a market-driven age. As a professor, I really want students to emerge thinking, questioning, being curious about the world. And, you know, if I'm, you know, at Berkeley, I am really lucky to have those those students, but that, for them and for everybody and for students generally in you know this um, hierarchical economy of of uh, benefits, you know the folks at the top, the gap between them and the and the and the you know the middle of the of the spectrum, huge gap. You know they want to know what is it that they you know what's the relationship between what they're doing and what they're going to what's the what's practical and that's you know that's the issue that drives the crisis in the humanities it drives at stanford it's the reason why stanford has become caltech of the north you know it's basically a tech school now with you know a kind of um sideshow of humanities and and uh and social sciences because you're in the silicon valley you know they'll you know you're going to make a lot of money you can really you know this is where the this is where the action is. So yes, and if you go to a, the kind of schools I'm talking about, people are going to major in practical stuff. You know, so, you know, hospitality, right? Recreation, whatever, studies. Um, and, you know, that's fine. You know, I, what, I'm not sure that some of that stuff ought to be taught in a, in a university. 
It's another point. But yes, they're paying, they're paying attention. And the other part of your question, to the other part of your question, there are differences in, in what the return is. But over the long run, it's very interesting to see that humanities graduates start out making less. But if you look 10, 20 years down the road, they've caught up. It's a message that, I mean, humanities professors are, this is not the kind of language that they want to traffic in. But I think it's important for them to get real about the fact that, it. yes, they're trying to open up students' minds, and yes, they need to acknowledge the economic realities those students are, are facing. Thank you. Um, my question was, you know, as it relates to this scandal, what are the role of private institutions, if at all? I mean, a lot of what you kind of talk about focuses on public institutions. I'm curious, does, you know, do state and local and federal government have any roles in in influencing private schools? And what would that look like? I think that's a great question, because if you look at all the conversation that's gone on now, it's all about free tuition at public universities. And one, nobody notices, nobody talks about the fact that they got kill private colleges, many of which are doing a great job of educating new gen students. They're, they tend to be smaller, right? They tend to be some of the, not the, again, I'm not talking about the fancy schools, but I'm talking about the good regional colleges, whether they're religious, religious based or not, you know, great. Many of them do great work. Um, and nobody is paying attention. To them, in terms of the national conversation, nobody's saying, what's the fallout going to be for these institutions? And you could have the same kind of a formula for those colleges as you do for public universities and say, we're going to subsidize your students. We're not going to give, you know, we're going to, we're not going to cover the entirety of your tuition if it's five times higher than a public university, but we're going to subsidize your students if you focus on graduation and if you focus on the opportunity gap. And I wish somebody would actually say, hey, what about us? And it's just been amazing to me that if I'm sure those voices are, are out there, but nobody is paying any attention to them. And that's, that's worrying. My understanding is 48% of the males in the U.S. make it beyond high school. And for women, it's 52. So my, my first question is, if that, if that's correct, does that include the dropouts that you're alluding to? And my, Second question is, is how does the vocational school that are common in some other countries, how would they change the numbers that you're alluding to? So you ask about college going rates or beyond high school rates, and I, and I don't have the figures at hand. I think those numbers are low um, because I think of many typical high schools in which you now have graduate high school graduation rates are about 85%, and I think that starting out college – Starting colleges in the 60s, I think. But this country has never really figured out how it's going to address the issue about, of vocational, good vocational, serious good vocational training in the way, say, let's say Germany does. And the best example I know, the, the, the best state, and I think that's a problem because community colleges are this amalgam. There's some practical stuff. You know, there's some certificate courses, there are some, you know, like in phlebotomy, there's some two-year courses that are practical courses, and then there are the two-year liberal arts move-on-to-university courses. Wisconsin does something very interesting. It has two kind of community colleges. It has the practical arts community colleges, and it has the liberal arts community colleges. 
And that makes sense because you can move back and forth. I think one of the great strengths of American higher education as compared to any other country that I know is that people have second and third and fourth chances to make it. You know, where else does somebody who is serving 20-year term for second-degree murder going to wind up as a, well, in, in one case, you know, a professor at Georgetown Law School or a guy who's got a medic who's teaching medicine at Howard and is a professor at Johns Hopkins and is running a program for former prisoners or in California is now teaching you know you know teaching in a in one of the one of the state universities those guys aren't going to have a chance to go to college or to university it's not going to happen so how you balance the second third fourth opportunity which i think is great and i see it at berkeley I mean, this is why Berkeley is one of the reasons it's so wonderful to teach at. You get all sorts of students. You get the moms who dropped out. They had kids. You know, they're smart. Kids get, kids graduate from high school. They say, okay, now it's my turn. They go back to school. They get their GED. They go to community college. They do really well. They transfer to Berkeley. Third of Berkeley students are transfer students from community college. There they are. Now that's the great story. The problem story is that the, is that we really haven't figured out a way of talking intelligently about it's okay, indeed it's more than okay, to be a plumber or an electrician or a carpenter. These are good, solid, serious jobs. They're not third and fourth rate jobs. I think we're, we're beginning to get there at the edges of that, but I think it's a, it's a real problem. And, and America has a lot to learn from other countries and on that question. Thank you. <clears throat> You uh, talked a lot about support, and uh, I wondered what you think is the most important. Well, let's let's say if we can agree that the move from high school to university, especially for disadvantaged groups of students, is a big leap, very stressful. Should the support be more on the high school side or the first few years of college? And if so, what kind? And how would they? How do those two mesh together? It's a great question. I've sat on. Here in San Francisco, I've sat on the boards of a number of youth-serving organizations. And, and the separations drive me nuts. You know, we have a bunch of, you know, you have some programs that serve middle school students. Some students serve high school students. Some focus on leadership. Some focus on academics. Some pay attention to the first year of, you know, to the bridge to college. You know, God bless America. Everybody is a social entrepreneur. It's wonderful. But everybody wants to be a star. That is not wonderful. You know, if I were, you know, if I were handing out dollars to these, these organizations here, I'd say, you come to me as a group and I'll, I'll give you a nice, I'll, I'll support you. Otherwise not. Because I don't think it's an either or story. I think you've got to build the process. You know, it's, you know, what's going on, you know, take those kids that I was describing in Hostess Community College. They needed somebody to be working with them way earlier. But certainly by the time they're in middle school, they need support. And there are great programs for that. But then they have to, they go on, you know, to high school and then they go on to college. I spent a lot of my career focused on early education, preschool, zero to five. And so people say, you know, these are the most important years of kids' lives. This is where all the learning takes place. You know, it's important to have high quality early education because otherwise students are going to fall behind, et cetera. All true. Absolutely true. But, you know, so my golden rule for all of this is every kid deserves what you'd want for a child you love. 
That's my golden rule. And so is the golden rule going to be, okay, we've done a brilliant job of the first five years, and then we're going to send the kid into the jungle that those kids in the Bronx went to? No, it's, it really isn't an either or. We are under-investing in the stuff that matters in terms of education, certainly starting with zero to five. But, you know, this sort of notion that we should give up on people along the way. My hosta story is what, to me, is a wonderful example of the fact that it's not over. The game isn't over for those 20-somethings. They've got enough resilience to have shown up, even though they're doing third-grade work, and, and to make it. And there's all that talent. We need that talent. This country needs that talent. It's just straight-out economic need for this country. We also need educated voters. <laughs> Another. <laughs> so, yeah, enough said on that, uh, on that subject. Sounds a lot like you're saying that we're trying to substitute the uh, a family. I mean, like a, the family support that other kids have for these people, and the family support shouldn't be a series of adoptive parents for different parts where there's no connection, but something that takes them all the way through as a support thing. Absolutely, and I also I'm glad you make that point because some very interesting programs in which you actually support the parents because it's not as though parents are not interested mm-hmm. in their kids' welfare. It's that. You know, they don't know what to do because they haven't been through the process themselves. And there's lots you can do to, to make parents effective advisors mm-hmm. for their kids, to understand what their kids' experience is and to be supportive in ways that are really productive. So there's, there is, there is, I, I love the, the way you put this, mm-hmm. the way you put that point. You really do have a series of, of adoptions going on for kids. Or, you know, you fall off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, you've fallen off the cliff and then somebody is supposed to pick yourself back up. And, and we also live in a world in which if you happen to go to school X at time X, you really lucked out. But if you didn't go there, you know, in the school, the same school was in a crisis where you went to the next school over, you know, you're out of luck. Um, you know, there's a professor named Sean Reardon at Stanford. Let's crunch the numbers. Kids who are in inner city schools, in big inner city schools are by middle school, they're four years behind their peers at suburban schools. In Chicago, there's a large study in Chicago, by the time kids from the areas of extreme poverty are going to school, they're a year, but they're five years old. They're a year behind kids who are the, the top of the rung of African American kids. And the reason the study was constructed that way was you couldn't even calculate what happened if you looked at the rich white kids. It was just, you know, way beyond the, way beyond the, the, the spectrum. So lots to be done at lots of levels of this, of, of this, uh, the education world. Uh, you spoke, uh, a little bit to like the earlier part of the, like, uh, step in the process or kind of higher up the funnel where, where kids are applying or maybe dropping out before they've ever actually started school. Mm-hmm. I was curious if you could speak more, to, and, you, and you talked about the FAFSA being sort of a barrier to that as well. I was curious if you could speak more to that and like, uh, are there other things that, that, that you noticed, uh, in combination with the FAFSA that, that might, uh, stop kids from, uh, making it there in the first place and or, you know, are there ways to get them to the right school where they're much more likely to make it all the way through to graduation? So those are two interesting questions. Let me talk about the FAFSA, for example, because California has its own version of, uh, of this kind of financial aid form. And they notice that a lot, you know, they want, they want high school students to get engaged in the idea of college early. And so there is this kind of preliminary, you know, 
introduction to the system form that they had. And they thought, you know, they, they turned to a colleague of mine and said, what can we do? He's a behavioral economist. Well, you could make the language a whole lot more friendly. You could get rid of all this bristly prose. And you could put in a sentence that said, you know, we look forward to your, you know, going to college. Sentence. So, in this sort of enrolling in this this system as a junior, it went from 60% to 67% by changing the language, and from 67% to 70% just by adding one sentence. One little encouraging sentence. So, the other part of the question is really, is also very interesting because there was this notion, this mismatch theory, which was, you know, if only these minority students would go to less demanding schools, they'd do a whole lot better. It's exactly wrong. It's exactly backwards. You take a student, and I just, I think about the daughter of a friend of mine. You know, she could have gone, if she had gone to one of the big state schools, and she lives here, she'd gone to Cal State East Bay, I have no doubt she would have dropped out or flunked out. She got into Agnes Scott, which is a historically black college in Atlanta. She's doing really badly initially. Um, Really, they came to her help. They supported her, provided extra instruction for her. You know, they found ways of really engaging her. They, um, her mother died um, this fall, and some of the teachers said, okay, you've done really great work. It's the end of November. That's enough. And the others said, fine, you can, you know, take incompletes. And these are small classes that that, student is, is, uh, is, is going to. So, and she happens to be African-American. So I think if you look at the data, the kids from the same high school, the same background, if they went to the University of Texas, let's say, versus University of Texas El Paso, they're much more likely to graduate at the University of Texas uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. So I think that, you know, what you needed, there's a huge pool of high-performing minority students who don't think that they have a shot at a good public or private university and give those kids the information they need. It's pretty good data on this. They'll apply to better places. They're much more likely to graduate and make it out in the, the world. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, George. It's always it's always great to have a problem that goes on forever and ever, and you're trying to solve the problem because more and more. I mean, if you can go back to World War II, and a small percentage of the population went to college, so now we have this other thing, but we have a new problem. You know, it's a totally different problem, but it's nice to think about actual solutions and real policies that might work. So, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club, and it's 117th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>